Hi everyone, welcome to CS edX 2021. My name is Dr. Kylie Press. I am a lecturer within the School of Education at Port, the Port Macquarie campus. And I am pleased to present uh, this innovation and quality podcast, introducing Lloyd Godson, a marine edutainer, science communicator, aquanaut, adventurer, uh, CSU alumni, and now high school science, STEM and marine studies teacher. And a 2021 Commonwealth Bank Teaching Award recipient. Congratulations and welcome, Lloyd. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Press. And it's always a pleasure to have a yarn about all things education with you. So thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, today, my guest will exemplify our theme of looking for and implementing new understandings of how learning can happen in order to promote, inspire and engage students with new ways of interacting with the subject content, where quality teaching transforms the way students think and act, enabling them to think and act outside the box and explore what is possible. Lloyd is here today to share his insights, big ideas, plans and teaching successes for what has already been a very successful, varied and interesting career. A career which began with a Bachelor of Marine Biology and Botany and honours at University of Queensland, followed by a graduate certificate of Antarctic Studies, University of Canterbury, New Zealand, in uh, Christchurch actually, and the opportunity of a two week field excursion camping in Antarctica on the Ross Ice Shelf under an active volcano, Mount Erebus. Lloyd, how did these early educational experiences influence and impact your career trajectory? <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Kylie. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest impacts I had while at, uni while at university um, was I was given a lot of opportunities and trust by the Marine Botany Department. Um, I met one professor, so I went into university thinking I was going to study corals, and I came across a professor who um, his background was in mangroves, and that was his specialty. And he had a lot of passion for mangroves and it really rubbed off on me and he gave me a lot of opportunities to conduct field studies in all parts of the world. So I traveled with him to far north Queensland, to Indonesia, to Panama, doing mangrove field studies. And I learned a lot from Dr. Duke, Dr. Norman Duke. He um, just gave me a lot of opportunity and a lot of trust as an undergrad student. I ended up doing honors with him on mangroves. Um, and I think I also realized the value of getting out into the real world um, and just how um, much that assisted me in my studies was it was one thing to do lectures on uh, coral reef um, systems in lecture theaters and mangroves, but going out with a professor and spending time in the field, collecting specimens, talking to other experts in the field from around the world, that was what really did it for me. And that's what I've tried to pass on to students since becoming a teacher is a lot of passion for my subject content. So, you know, I'm teaching stuff that I love and have a passion for, and hopefully this rubs off on some of my students, but then also providing them with opportunities that they would never have thought possible prior to being one of my students, I guess. And so that's where I invest a lot of my energy is creating opportunities and field excursions and um, things like that, even within the school where they can do things they might not have thought about prior to, to working with me. That's lovely, Lloyd. Uh, the fact that you're bringing science and making it alive in a secondary classroom and these students don't have to wait till they get to university to be inspired in chosen careers, it's uh, lovely to hear. 
thanks for that. Uh, as stated earlier in your website, lloydgodson.com, it describes you as a marine edutainer, science communicator, aquanaut, and adventurer uh, for very good reasons. And amongst all of the many honours and awards that you have received, uh, back in 2005, you won the Australian Geographic Wildest Adventure Competition, Live Your Dream. Congratulations. And that was based on a proposal to design, build and live in an underwater, self-sufficient, self-sustaining biosub. Would you mind outlining what all of this involved and why you undertook this challenge? Yeah, no problems, Kylie. It's kind of funny because we're talking about thinking and teaching outside the box, but my um, first foray into teaching was actually living underwater in an underwater box. And um, I did that for, for 12 days. So it was a self-sustaining underwater habitat that I launched in uh, my hometown of Aubrey Wodonga. So in the Murray River uh, in the Wonga wetlands. Um, so what I set out to do was create a virtual classroom underwater. And this is back in 2007. So long before a lot of these technologies like Zoom existed. Um, and I wanted to take students along on this dream of mine, this journey of living underwater. So I spent a lot of time prior to actually doing the project, visiting schools, talking to students online. There's a photo there from the government of South Australia. They're trialing new software to replace School of the Air. So I started talking to students out in the, the outback region of Australia. But I spent a lot of time going into classrooms and seeing classes and talking about my plans and updating them on where I was going with this idea. Um, and then eventually when I did spend 12 days living underwater, I was able to connect in with those same students and talk to them live from underwater and give them a tour of my underwater habitat. There was so many teaching opportunities. Um, I had algae that was providing some of my oxygen down there. I was pedaling to generate electricity. Um, there's all the issues of overcoming the buoyant forces to get this massive big bubble of air down at the bottom of this lake. How I was gonna keep it there? How much concrete did I need? So all the calculations regarding the physics behind getting a big bubble of air anchored to the bottom of the seafloor, in this case, the lake. Um, and so it was kind of my first experience um, teaching and going into classrooms. And I was pleasantly surprised at the level of engagement from students um, when I would speak to them about the things that I was planning to do and when I was doing it. I had the good fortune of meeting a presidential um, science uh, award winner from America, Clinton Kennedy. Uh, he actually came over with six of his high school students doing advanced biology and built me my life support system. Um, they spent about two weeks in Australia, their community fundraised to help pay for their flights over. And what I saw in Clinton as a teacher was something that um, it just changed my complete way of thinking about teaching as a career. The way he worked with the children was absolutely amazing. Um, he was a facilitator rather than a teacher. He gave the students the opportunity to think for themselves. He stepped in and guided them as needed when required. Um, but the things his students um, achieved in those two weeks with me were absolutely incredible. And we had a, quite a diverse range of students. They weren't all academic, um, but the ones that who weren't um, necessarily academic, but had a real talent for art, they were still valued in the team. They created the team logo. We had a spokesperson in the team. So they all felt really valued and um, like a, a key part of the team. And together we achieved some amazing things. And that was kind of like the first trigger for me and like, oh, maybe teaching is something that I could consider doing when I was able to see what I could do with 
with young people when given the opportunity. Um, so yeah, that, that was uh, quite a unique opportunity. There's an image of what my underwater habitat looked like. So the big coils you see in the background there with the lights inside, that was the life support system, the bio coil that the students from um, Cascade, Idaho in America constructed for me. So we had that constructed on land and then they helped me actually transport that into my underwater habitat. I was on a bike, which not only produced electricity, but also circulated the algae through the coils. And then I had a very basic toilet in the corner and stretcher bed um, and some plants. And I was linked up to a professor over in America that I met at a conference um, who she worked with astronauts at NASA. And uh, she did a lot of cognitive testing throughout the experience and was making sure I was healthy and functioning well during those 12 days, because it was a quite experimental setup, let's say. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience and I uh, had lots of students come through and talk to me. So you can see here, this is at the wetlands. Students would come in bus groups and come down to the edge of the lake. I'd give them a tour of the habitat with the camera and answer all their questions. And it was a life-changing experience for me. Lovely. Uh, you talked a little bit about your life support system underwater. How exactly did you manage to live and breathe submerged underwater for 12 days? Yeah, I'll just quickly flick back to this image. So apart from the life support system that the students built me here, the biocoil, um, I also had a floating um, 12 volt dive compressor on the surface. And you can see there's two hoses going into the top of my habitat. Um, so one of those hoses comes directly from the compressor. Another one uh, shoots off over to the shore support group. Uh, we had 16 solar panels on the surface, which were able to power up the compressor. So that would supplement my air from the, the bio coil that the students built. And aside from that, it was just keeping busy. I had scheduled quite a lot of um, talks with students throughout the day. So um, most days I was doing at least four or five kind of sessions with school groups from around Australia and sometimes around the world. Um, but towards the end, it got very tiring. I had pretty high carbon dioxide levels inside and this took its toll on my body over the two weeks. Um, started to get pretty irritable and grumpy and fatigued and ended up exiting the habitat after 12 days, learning a whole lot. And, and again, that kind of just opened up um, some more opportunities for me in terms of um, projects that followed. Yes, lovely. Um it didn't end there. So back in 2007, you also won the Australian Geographic Adventurer of the Year Award. And in 2009, the Scientific Projects uh, Competition sponsored by the John S. Latsis uh, Public Benefit Foundation, as well as the Powerhouse Museum Wizard of the Year Highly Commendable Award. Congratulations again. And this helped fund your proposed 2009 Life Amphibious Project. So another underwater project, but a little bit different. And in collaboration with Canadian university students, you designed and built a non-propeller, human-powered, a one-seater, or should I say room for one only, torpedo-shaped, wet, OMA-6 submarine. I think I've got all the adjectives in there, uh, which featured biologically inspired design, mimicking the efficient swimming style of stingrays and penguins. And then use this to reenact the mythical journeys of, so there's that literature component as well, uh, Homer's Odysseus and Jules Verne's uh, Captain, Captain Nemo by swimming 15 nautical miles around Greek islands in this vessel. Again, would you mind telling us the reasons for doing this 
and who and what it involved. Yeah, thanks, Kylie. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely only room for one in there. You can see it's quite a tight fit, not for the claustrophobic, that's for sure. Um, yeah, it's quite bizarre. Like this is, you can see the picture of me going into the. But you uh, look like hanging. you're enjoying it. So. Oh yeah, I loved it. It was like a dream come true. It was like a little yeah. <laughs> smile from ear to ear. Yeah. Um, very hard work, took a lot of training. So I'd, yeah. um, pedaling a 600 kilogram submarine through the deep blue sea requires a lot of effort. Um, so I'd be, uh, you can see the dive computer there. I also had a heart rate monitor linked up to that dive computer. Um, basically, I'd have to lock my feet into cycling pedals then um, someone would try to like push me down and then close the hatch on top of me. Um, and then I would grab my two handles, one for up and down, one for left and right, and I would pedal like a maniac and propel <laughs> myself through the water using these two big um, fins on the side of the submarine. And um, over in Greece, the sea is quite deep straight off the islands, and so you know, you can go out into a few hundred metres of water within a few pedals and no bottom in sight. So that made navigation very, very tricky. Um, but the reason I did this project, getting back to answer your question, was I um, discovered these students in Canada who had been leading the world in the, um, they have a big competition over in the States every year where they race these human powered submarines. And this team had consistently won um, the speed record for their designs in just about every category. So you mentioned that this one was a non-propeller human powered submarine. They also have propeller and then they have different categories for one or two people inside the submarines. And I asked them if they would be interested in modifying um, their design again for a real world application and taking it out of the swimming pool and putting it into the sea. And they were really eager to, you know, they'd never thought of, they'd been building and designing these submarines to race in the swimming pool in America. Um, and they'd never actually tried it in the real world, like out in the ocean. They were thrilled at the opportunity to bring it over to Greece and, and reenact this last part of this adventurous journey. Um, the other part of the um, story is that I really wanted to visit these small regional schools in the Greek islands, you know, um, some of the, that's the whole school you can see there. So only a handful of children. Mm. Um, they don't often get exposed to innovation and technology and um, really exciting things like this. And so we would pedal into these um, ports and pull the submarine out and put it on the, the dock and we would invite the school to come down. And you probably can't see that very well, but it's one of the girls in the front there in the red shirt, red jumper. She's holding a brochure there from Medicet, which was a sea turtle um, organization, a non-for-profit in Greece that we partnered with to deliver an environmental message, I guess, to some of these more regional communities. And so, yeah, the submarine was very eye-catching and, you know, looked very James Bondish as you'd pedal into the ports and then would pull it out. The kids would get to have a look at it. The students would explain what they had built and how they managed to make this thing propel itself through the water. Um, and then we would also talk about some of the issues which are, um, like environmental waste in the waters in Greece and how that affects marine organisms like turtles, for example, um, and have a chat to the, the teachers and students about um, what we're up to. Um, that's the submarine in action underwater. So you can see you spoke about the biomimicry. So the wings of the submarine were designed in a way to mimic like the swimming motion of a penguin. They would travel up on those slots on the side of the submarine and flip over, change the angle of attack. And that's how the propulsion, that's how it was propelled through the water. 
uh, all made of carbon fiber. And then we had a support vessel behind. And as the project went, we had oh, lots of modifications in terms of navigation in particular, because it was near impossible to, to follow something off the seafloor when it was so deep. So um, you had to come up with a, a different kind of system. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. Again, there was a handful of students, about four students from Canada, um, still in touch with many of those today, most of those four. Um, their professor came over and put what they'd been building for years and developing for years um, into the real world and we created an expedition out of it. Sounds lovely and very interactive for all involved. I'm just curious, how long exactly we, did it take to uh, travel 15 nautical miles? Yeah, well, not very long at all. This is actually, um, yeah, this submarine had the world speed record in the swimming pool. It would travel at just over four knots. Right. Um, yes, so it's kind of like at a slow jog pace, I guess, 10 kilometres an hour. Um, okay. The hard part was maintaining, maintaining that speed for a long period of time. That's what took the training. Um, I would max out at about... 45 minutes would be about as most as much as I could pedal at a time before I needed to come up, change over the tanks and then go back down again. Um, so yeah, we I think the expedition took us roughly um, three to four days, but we had some problems with the weather. First of all, it was really, really rough. And then we got a window of opportunity. And we actually did that 15 nautical mile trip all in one or two days, I think it was. So right. Well done. Uh, again, a very impressive and imaginative challenge, but it doesn't end here. Uh, in 2010, I've heard you report on a family trip uh, to Germany where you instigated a Legoland challenge and in the process achieved a Guinness World Record by launching the Legoland Year of Records and entering a 2.5 by 1.6 metre fully submerged underwater aquarium for 336 hours which is exactly two weeks. Uh, and during this time, you generated 2,502 watt hours of electricity, which is the largest amount of electrical power ever produced underwater in this way. So would you mind telling us how this came about, uh, what was involved and achieved from an educational point of view? Yeah, as you mentioned, um, I was on holidays in Germany with my family and we drove past Legoland and they were building a new aquarium and they were looking for a project to launch a new aquarium. And I, I sent them an email about my Biosub project in Australia and I never heard back from them. Uh, but then a few months later, they wrote and asked if I'd be willing to come to Germany and speak to their bosses about the possibility of uh, creating a Guinness World Record attempt in an underwater habitat um, at Legoland Deutschland in Ginsburg. Um, and for me, it was always really important. You can kind of see the theme in my projects so far um, that I have a really strong education component. Although I wasn't a, a teacher at this point in time, uh, I was really keen to make my projects um, engaging to young people, but also have something that they could take away with that and inspire them. You know, uh, I wanted it to be a strong theme in whatever I did. And so uh, teaming up with Legoland, they asked me to do a record and had proposed a bunch of kind of, I guess, more humorous records and things, but I was really quite firm about, I wanted to, this project to have um, strong educational value. Um, hence the reason I went for the, um, the power record, the energy production record by human power. I think there's a lot of opportunity to teach 
um, you know, when you're doing something like this, uh, all the calculations you need. And quite often when I'm teaching my students energy at school, I will tell them about, you know, how many um, watts my generator was able to produce, how many days I was down there, um, what the record was, you know, how many hours a day would I have to pedal in order to reach this record? And they start to appreciate um, when they realize it's like five, five or six hours on average that I needed to pedal every day on my generator, just how difficult um, it is. Um, and throughout the two week project, I had something like 100,000 people come through to have a look and ask questions. So we had a translator um, who would stand at the window of the aquarium. Um, people would ask questions and I would answer those questions and she would translate back to the audience. So it was quite a taxing project. If you can imagine peddling some days up to eight hours because I, um, I was thinking my generator was generating 60 watts. And in fact, because of all the, the cables and things that actually was only putting out 30, um, so it meant I had to double all my estimates. And so I had to do a lot of catch up from day three onwards. And so it was a lot of time on the bike, very tiring, talking to people and the size of the habitat. If you thought my previous habitat was small, well, this one was absolutely tiny. You can see me there sitting on my bed. I got the bike generator beside it. And um, there was some really big windows, which was an improvement on my first one. And being in an underwater habitat, um, it was a lot more controlled. Uh, sorry, being in an aquarium, it was a lot more controlled. So yes. to be really careful about what materials we put into the water with these animals. Um, and again, it was all solar powered from the, the roof of the aquarium. You can see a little solar light there and human powered with my, my generator. And yeah, it was a really interesting project, but um, probably the I struggled trying to get, you know, it's always a, it's a tough one balancing, you know, when you're working with a big company like Lego, the, the PR value to them versus the education that was really important to me. And so trying to get a balance where everyone was happy, I guess. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was the tricky part of that project, but it was a very rewarding experience again. And um, once again, just sort of, you know, opened up more opportunities and um, I learned a lot about, you know, what my values were and um, where I wanted to go with my career. Lovely, Lloyd, and, and well done uh, for being a Guinness World Record holder for such an impressive act. Um, but again, it doesn't end here. You've also been a member of the Ocean Exploration Trust as a science communication fellow. And this nonprofit organization was founded by one of your mentors, I think, Dr. Robert uh, Ballard, discoverer of the RMS Titanic, 1985, the battleship Bismarck, 1989, and uh, hydrothermal vents off the coast of South America, amongst other things. And your research ship, the Nautilus, uh, was supplied with remotely operated vehicles, ROVs, able to dive to depths of up to 4,000 metres. And while this global expedition has explored oceans worldwide, uh, you actually joined it as a science communicator from the coast of Belize uh, to Jamaica. And then again, on another trip to investigate the recent deep water horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I think you were one of the first ships to actually investigate it. Uh, what did you find most notable about these experiences and what did your role as science communicator entail exactly? Yeah, thanks, Kylie. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because um, Dr. Ballard was actually a um, 
childhood hero of mine. I absolutely loved the work that he did. And I remember my dad gave me an autobiography of his when I was 16. And it was one of the few books that I read over and over again as a teenager. I was absolutely um, amazed by his story and what he achieved. Um, and so when I was living in Greece, this is going back um, more than a decade now, I was sitting out on my my front deck one day having a coffee in the morning and I see this massive ship going past the sea in front of us and I was hadn't seen one so large coming past and I was really curious about it I looked it up on the internet you know you can track what vessel it is and I saw it was um, the RV Nautilus and so I looked it up and realized oh man that's Dr Ballard's cruising past the front of our house he was um, he started in the Mediterranean and explored a lot of ancient shipwrecks and things. And I saw his website and saw the amazing work they were doing with their underwater robots transmitting live basically 24 hours a day um, for about half of the year, depending on the season. And they were um, exploring and broadcasting what they were seeing from the bottom of the seafloor. And what I saw was some amazing citizen science. There were people, for example, in Greece who would tune in and watch and were able to give the scientists information about certain wrecks um, as they were down there with their robots that the scientists had no, no idea about just information that had been passed down you know and as free divers or whatever they might have heard things and so I thought this was just incredible and so then when we moved back to Australia um, I actually applied to become a science communicator on the RV Nautilus and um, was accepted and so that involved going to America to Rhode Island going to the university, meeting Dr. Ballard, which was amazing in itself. Um, and then uh, we would be trained up on our particular leg of the expedition season. So we'd meet all the crew and scientists that we're going to be working with on board. We'd meet the other educators um, and would learn all about our role as science communicators. So basically what that meant on the ship, our role was to deliver highly engaging um, satellite um, lessons and sessions to museums and schools and um, universities all around the world. And we we're pretty much doing that uh, around the clock. And so it was a very, very tiring experience. You'd be um, on for four hours, off eight, on four, off eight, that would continue for the duration of the expedition, which was two weeks. Um, and what was sort of notable about this, okay, one, they, uh, handpick educators from around the world and so I was working with some of the best educators I've come across they were just absolutely incredible to work with I learned so much and we were really encouraged to be creative so I was teamed up now you can see there this is the the crew that I was on board with a lot of young people on board this was something that stood out um, a lot of people in their early 20s out there doing cutting edge research and working on robots and you know, it was all about providing those opportunities to students. And, you know, here's a great example. These are uh, a few students that would be the equivalent of year 10 in Australia. Um, and they're transiting from one expedition to the next. So the boat's just literally driving from one spot to the next. They bring on high school students and give them two or three days experience at sea with people. This is a pilot who took uh, Bob Dall Rob Ballard down to the Titanic um, talking about this robot with these students, showing them, you know, all the ins and outs and um, just incredible experience for these guys to be exposed to people like that. Um, and there was a real emphasis on education. It was authentic. That's like 
there was a lot of research going on and our job as communicators was to communicate that research to the general public. So there was, a, as I mentioned before, a live stream that was going around the clock. People would write in questions. Our job was to answer those questions, but you'd be in a room with all the scientists and pilots and we'd all be connected. So I'd be facilitating a conversation with these people to answer someone's question rather than just, hi, Kylie's asked, um, how deep are you right now? You know, and I'm oh, we're currently at two and a half thousand meters exploring deep sea corals. Um, I could talk to the pilots and get them to share some stories about, you know, what's the deepest you've been and how, how what it's the coolest thing you've ever seen, or what are we looking at right now? You get the, the coral biologist on there to tell you about the species and things. And, it was just an absolutely amazing experience. Um, that was kind of like the final thing for me. I came back from my first experience on Nautilus wanting to um, pursue teaching and signed up with CSU to do my Bachelor of Teaching for secondary. Yeah. It seems like you've made the most of observing, i.e. noticing the ship, the Nautilus, and seeing what that involves and then being a part of it. And then even those opportunities such as driving past Legoland and thinking, great, I've got a good idea, let's use it. So well done on using your initiatives so well. Um, these are all incredible experiences and a great basis upon which, as you mentioned, you embarked on a Bachelor of Teaching secondary degree at Charles Sturt University, um, followed by a teaching career uh, with secondary science, STEM and marine studies at a regional low socioeconomic public school. However, in comparison to what you have since completed as a teacher, it seems to be just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, for example, I've heard you mention previously that within your first week as a full-time teacher, you asked your principal for three weeks off work. Why? Well, you had already successfully applied for a place with the Educator on Board program, and you then flew over Antarctica with four lucky students, uh, and later spent time aboard the Australian Marine uh, Research Vessel called the Investigator, mapping international shipping channels in Bass Strait. So how were you able then to link these adventures to educational experiences, not just for those on the flight to Antarctica, for example, uh, but to those back in the classroom and validate your time out of the classroom? Yeah, well, firstly, I think my, um, my principal was very supportive and realised the educational value of these opportunities because I was extremely nervous, as you mentioned, in my first mm -hmm. week full-time teaching to walk into my news new principal's office and say, <laughs> um, hey, I need to take um, a week off to take some students down to Antarctica. Um, but he thought that was absolutely incredible. And it was, we got to visit um, a lot of research institutes in Hobart prior to going down. So we went to CSIRO, we went to the um, Antarctic Institute, um, we went to the universities down there. We spoke to a lot of people working in the field of Antarctic science. Um, and then after we linked up with some people working down at Casey Station via video conference, and then the next day we got on a plane and flew over them and gave them, <laughs> gave them away from uh, a jumbo jet uh, with Qantas. So that was absolutely incredible. The students got to go up into the cockpit with the, the crew and, you know, and experience that. They, um, it was just uh, one learning opportunity after the other. So I don't think the principal had any issues with, um, you know, what the students were going to get out of that experience. Um, the educator on board, it was really interesting for me to um, be a participate, participant of the educator on board program, having been on 
two of the expeditions with Ocean Exploration Trust in America, just to see the difference between our national marine research vessel and how it does its program compared to Nautilus. Um, Nautilus, obviously, you know, it's um, a lot more of a focus on the education and the investigator, um, you know, it's the main focus is research and then they have an education arm to it. Um, we were doing it, there was a lot less live sessions per day, but I was able to connect to my students from the Bass Strait. We're mapping um, international shipping channels with the Navy. They were actually on the vessel as well. And so I was able to do a couple of sessions from the back deck, you know, talk, talk to the students about what we were doing. Uh, we were doing some seabird surveys as well. Um, then the other thing I was required to do as a participant was develop uh, curriculum materials, try them in my classroom and then submit those to CSIRO. And then they maintain a, a website where they upload all of the um, resources that have been developed by um, fellows in the past. And so that's a really good opportunity to, to share things that you've tried in your classroom um, and tweak them a little bit depending on how it went or didn't go with your students and then uh, upload those for other people to, to use with their students as well. And so, yeah, I created some um, nice kind of like lesson series of like two or three lessons that sort of were in sequence with each other um, and not necessarily related to marine studies, but they would fit nicely in with kind of like stage four um, science topics. So yeah. yeah, apart from being on the ship, there is a lot of work to do when you're back, um, you know, developing new materials for others to use. Yes. And out of all of this, say, for example, with your Antarctic um, exploits and that sort of thing, have any of your students uh, made a decision to, like, say, study Antarctica to, on a at a tertiary level or uh, become scientists? I'm just curious as to uh, some of these students would have been fairly young, may not have graduated yet from high school. Have you got any indication as to the number of students who are now thinking seriously about science as a career? Yes. Um, okay. So I've had some success stories. Um, yeah. uh, generally speaking, just in numbers, like when I first arrived here at Hastings Secondary College, we had uh, two classes of marine studies, both junior. Um, next year, we're going to have five. So <laughs> um, it's kind of shown the growth, you know, um, we've got our first earth and environmental class ever, uh, senior right. six. So that's, something I'm very excited about. So we've gone from having uh, two junior classes next year, we'll have three junior classes and two senior classes and earth and environmental. So the interest is definitely growing in, um, in that field. Yes. And then um, I haven't been here for an overly long time. This is my fourth year. Um, so I have started to see, um, so senior students are assigned a mentor. Uh, so I've mentored, um, this is my third year of mentoring. Um, but uh, two students that I've previously mentored have now got into university doing marine science and wow. they didn't necessarily, when they came to me uh, as my mentees, they weren't necessarily thinking about that as a career option. But I think that's one of the biggest outcomes from all of these opportunities. It's that the better opportunities of what's available to them after school. And, you know, this just might not have been something they even thought about, but um, it's opening no. eyes to other things. And, through your stories, they get excited and inspired and then start looking at things. So I had a, my mentee this year just found out she's, she's um, gained early off her entry into doing marine science. So she's, she's pretty stoked about that. And Lovely. Um, 
yeah, it's quite rewarding that part because yeah, you do have to be here for long enough, I guess, to see that translate into students going on and doing something after school. And I'm just starting to reap those rewards now, which is kind of cool. That's lovely, congratulations. Uh, again, um, since you started teaching in 2018, uh, your endeavors and extracurricular activities have increased exponentially. Uh, for example, um, I've got a list here and I'll just take the opportunity to uh, mention a few of these. Um, again, this is on a completely different track to what we've been talking about. But in 2015, you envisioned and co-founded the Nature School in Port Macquarie. And I believe that's currently uh, for the primary years. Um, and how did this alternative approach to education eventuate? And what is the school's purpose? Yeah, so the Nature School was an organisation I founded back in 2015 uh, with two other local ladies who were very passionate about environmental education. Um, Basically, we'd moved back to Australia. Uh, we had one child at the time and I was looking around for what was on offer in the education space in Port Macquarie. And I just thought there was a gap in terms of, um, I guess, a, a school that, um, well, in the first instance, sorry, it was an early years program. So I was looking for a space where children were able to take risks and, um, you know, learn about the natural environment. It's such a beautiful place here in Port Macquarie, but there didn't seem like there was anyone um, taking young people out and teaching them about the, the natural world around them, the natural cycles and things. Um, and we ran a pilot program to see if there'd be any interest. Uh, we got some support from the local council. And then we ran our first program. We started with about 12 or 13 children just one day a week. We ran that for a term. And then the interest sort of just grew from there until we had basically a five day, four or five day a week program filled with um, 12 to 13 children a day. This is all sort of um, three to five year olds. And my son was actually one of the um, first uh, participants. There he is there on the, the log. And um, wow. we were just fine, identify some beautiful natural areas in Port Macquarie with the help of council. And then um, we created an outdoor learning space for these children. When they sort of went on to graduating and starting primary school, um, the parents were really happy with um, what they had experienced at the early years program. They started asking us if we would consider starting a school. Um, so in 2018, we started the first um, side of the primary school uh, from, it was just kinder year one, I think initially, and it's kind of grown year by year. We're now up to um, kinder to five. Yeah. Um, and then the, the board has just announced that they're um, going to launch a uh, secondary school in 2023, so year after next. Um, oh. The kids will transition from primary into secondary. And it's, yeah, I'm very passionate about outdoor education and nature pedagogy. And I just think that the nature school is all about just looking at the, um, the curriculum through a nature lens and presenting it in a slightly different way. And I have the good fortune of I'm working there one day a week at the moment, helping with the, the secondary application as well. So, again, it's just a really nice opportunity to think if I could start a school and yeah. um, design one from scratch, how would it look? And so you that's it. Yeah, it's really good. I get to put my creative hat on and, um, you know, really um, rethink what could be school in a couple of years time for for my son and a bunch of other lucky students in the region. So. It's a lovely initiative, but a very big one. So well done. 
and uh, good luck moving forward into secondary school. Um, I hope it all goes really well, um, but I'll be here to see it and that's lovely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's huge. Uh, but aligned with this, um, you've got other interests. Uh, you're involved with the mountain unicycling and instigated the Port Macquarie one-wheeled wackadoos. Um, so you've got a trip planned. Um, and I think that's, what is it, uh, drive, or riding through uh, Tasmania, which is uh, not flat. So um, how do you intend linking this to an educational experience for your students? Yeah, so the One World Wackadoos, that was um, launched last year, uh, just prior to, to COVID um, hitting us all and yeah. starting the lockdowns. And so what essentially I wanted to do was create a wellbeing program within our school where on Fridays after school, um, I would meet up with with students uh, down at the, the local netball courts. And I had a whole heap of unicycles, I think about 20 unicycles um, donated. And um, we, I just started inviting students come down, have a chat. Um, I had some adults there like mentors and the students, I'd find that I, I wouldn't really need to push it or promote it very hard. It just kind of, the it seemed to attract the people that needed to be there and it was really good students would come down I would be there for a couple of hours on a Friday would have a ride around it's a really frustrating thing to learn unicycling and yeah. I think it's, it's really good it teaches a lot of sort of life skills for students and that was kind of why I set it up um, it teaches a lot of things about resilience and determination and persistence because any student I guarantee them if they spend enough time and just keep on going and not give up that they will get it. It'll click one day and they'll learn to ride. And had one of my year nine students at the time, she had been there for 10 weeks straight, still couldn't ride it. Um, another boy um, student came down and he literally picked it up and could ride it within about an hour. And I'd never seen that before. And, um, you know, very, very frustrating for the girl, you know, but she, <laughs> Stuck at it, stuck at it. Her her mum and her grandma were telling her to to quit it and give it up. And I said, no, don't listen to your mum in this case. You got to stick at it, you know. And and she got there, and it's just that kind of um sense of reward, you know. And teaches them a bit of grit, you know. You got to hang in there, keep going at things, not give up. And yeah. not everything in life comes easy, but there's you know it feels really great when you get it. And so, anyways, that kind of eventuated into um like I tend to do. I, can't just ride a unicycle I have to do something friends <laughs> so I um yeah this January my son and I are going to mountain unicycle across Tasmania from north north to south on the Tasmania trail um it's about eight and a half thousand meters of elevation gain over wow. 17 days so it's going to be it's going to be very tough um but this was all based on a program that's run out of Taiwan where um there's some disengaged students um, often out of like juvenile detention and things like that. And, and an educator there started using unicycles as a way of teaching them grit and get them back on track. And they conclude the program by doing a thousand kilometer circumnavigation of Taiwan. And he's got kids as young as like seven years old, riding unicycles, 50 Ks a day. And um, that kind of gave me the, the idea to, to use unicycles as a, um, a tool to help, you know, get kids back on track. And so this is kind of like a pilot program leading into that. That's my plan. Yes. So if it works for you and your son, you might try it further. 
Yeah, well, it's definitely, it's, it's, I do have other students who are writing them and writing them really well. Um, yeah. I won't be taking them on this trip across Tassie, but it's been really good to see them progress into becoming really competent unicyclists. Well, good luck, because uh, that's very, very game. And um, I'm really impressed with a student who lasted 10 weeks. I can't imagine her sense of satisfaction after finally achieving it. And in fact, it's in proportion to the amount of effort that she put in. So I, yeah, I think that's like that in the wonderful. classroom. Too, Carly. She's uh, any assessment task that I ever give. She's she just sticks at it and at it and at it and goes back. It's to going it to pay off. Yeah. So she knows. <laughs> it's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, in terms of uh, another thing that you do, uh, field, uh, field excursion, sorry, you have yeah. raised funds uh, yeah. allowing students to visit not just local industries, but Australian and international STEM camps. Uh, for example, I've heard of the four students uh, mentioned earlier who accompanied you on a 15-hour flight over Antarctica, besides the other uh, science excursions that they had, whilst another 18 students accompanied you to Lady Elliot Island Eco Resort as part of a citizen science study of manta rays, and six students accompanied you to the Aquabots competition in New Zealand. Uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, all of this is a lot of work. Uh, do you have, sorry, I'm just getting a call and I should just uh, delete that. Um, do you have a personal assistant for all the administration attached to organising these events? And what are the outcomes of these excursions? Yeah, so I wish I had a personal assistant. <laughs> and <laughs> Good luck, uh, I wish, yeah. Um, yeah, the paperwork and the there is a lot of work involved in setting up even a local excursion. So you can imagine taking students interstate or overseas, um, the workload just escalates and it, it is um, a massive undertaking. Um, you mentioned earlier too that I work at a low socioeconomic school. So I do invest a lot of time in organising excursions, trying to organise funds so that it's accessible to all students. I really don't like selecting or taking students um, purely based on their Those parents, that can um, afford. you know, and so um, I kind of, I've got a lot of time for things like that. I'm also, as I mentioned, very passionate about um, outdoor education and providing real world opportunities and nature pedagogy. And so providing these kind of things, I'm I'm more than happy to spend time because I find it extremely rewarding. And, you know, um, I think it was my first year of teaching. I took my first overseas excursion. And mm -hmm. there's not a lot of, you know, when you work in a school and it's a busy environment to be in, there's quite often you don't, it's not something that someone can just sit you down and tell you this is how you do an overseas excursion. It's, mm. um, you know, you need to do a lot of reading of policies and emailing, you know, district office and finding out um, what you can and can't do. And, and there's a, a just, it's a mountain, you know, in terms, yes. but it gets, the more you do it, the easier it becomes because you, you then have this knowledge and then you can pass that on to other people who then want to plan something similar. Um, the outcomes for, for students, I've kind of, I've, there's two for me that, um, one I've mentioned earlier, it's the better understanding of opportunities after school, because I think a lot of the times, not until you do these things and kids see, because a lot of the time kids from this school, they've never been outside of Port Macquarie or maybe they've been to a, you know, a capital city or something in Australia. But to jump on a plane, like sometimes a tiny plane and fly out to a remote island or an eco resort or, you know, go overseas on a, their first ever overseas trip and all these things. I mean, there's just you can just see their minds just boggling. There's so much yeah. to take in. And um, 
and it's just letting them know that yeah there's more there's a lot more out there than what you probably know already you're just exposing them to that um yes. the other one that's i'm really really big on and this is probably um equally important for me is the quality teacher student relationships that you develop through those opportunities like the students that i've been to lady elliot island with or been to new zealand with underwater robotics with or been to taiwan with all these things you the relationships you build with those students mm. on those trips is just incredible and and quite often you know it's been the students that have been on those trips that then ask you to ask you to be their mentor um, because they have that really good connection with you um, you know that you've got their best interest at heart and you're gonna you're gonna go above and beyond for them to help them get where they want to go yeah, um, lovely so I mean I can list there's heaps of other educational outcomes of course like all these excursions are linked to syllabus outcomes for marine studies or whatever subject it might be through but for me that's the kind of that's the the more important outcomes in my mind when I take kids on these opportunities great that trust that they have in you is lovely but yeah, it is to your credit that you go to the effort that you have to secure these events for students. And trust, you know, when you go, when you talk, start talking classroom management as well, having those yes. relationships just makes that so much easier. Yes. You have a lot less behavioural issues to deal with. Um, when you tell a kid to pull his head in, he's like, oh, you know, yeah, sorry, sir, whatever. Yes, <laughs> they, lovely. <laughs> they just, you've got that connection. You can just, you know, you don't need to go a lot of the time to that next level you know and escalate it so you can sort of manage it much more easy in the classroom that's what I find from experience anyways yes it's working well done um, again and another thing that you do in terms of sustainability and community-minded projects uh, you have your, your students had a therapy dog program which was selected as the Australian winner of the global design for change competition uh, back in 2019 uh, what exactly did this involve Lloyd yeah, so this was a um, design thinking competition. It's a global organisation. I think it started in India, but it's basically run in every country uh, in the world. Um, and what they do is they usually have, it's an open-ended challenge. So basically the students come up with a um, an issue in their community that they'd like to solve and they follow a four-step process. And the last step of the process is sharing and that's sharing with their school community or the wider community. But then the winners of each country um, who participate come to a global conference um, and it's in a different host nation every year. And so uh, I think it was my first year of teaching. Uh, we, I got a bunch of students who are interested in design thinking and going through this process. And they decided between them that what they wanted to do was launch another wellbeing program in the school that used the therapy dog. Um, so they went through the, the four-step process, launched the therapy dog program here at school. Um, they submitted their entry to Design for Change Australia, were selected as the winners. And so um, they actually flew myself and two students um, over to Taiwan to present their work on a global stage. Um, again, this was two year seven students and now in my year 10 class, um, first time uh, for one of them overseas and standing up in front of there was like a thousand plus people uh students from all around the world in the um theater um they'd also blown up every picture every student was their photograph was blown up into like a massive poster size all around the the wall as they walked in they could spot themselves with the australian flag and their name and they were made to feel like superheroes and the whole conference 
not once until the end, uh, when the founder got up to conclude the, the conference, was there an adult on stage. It was all student-led, student-run. Uh, you'd walk in, the students were directing you where to go, the students from Taiwan, and then there was all the presenters on stage were students. It was completely student-run, and I was just blown away and amazed at that, but it's something that I, and I'll talk about this a bit later, um, making programs that you do at school, the extracurricular stuff as student-led as possible, give them the power to run it how they like and do the things, design it how they like, and you become a facilitator. I think it's a lot more powerful. Um, so that was the big takeaway message from that. And um, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to have those two students are in my year 10 science class this year, and it's just been amazing to watch them progress they were so nervous um, to get up on stage, obviously in front of over a thousand people, but when they, the way they run it, by the time they got to having to go up on stage, they were so confident and having fun and joking with the audience. And it was just such a nice environment and it was all created by young people. So I think that was pretty cool. It sounds excellent, especially the part where those students are seeing themselves as superheroes of design and initiative. Um, yeah, they you know, saw their name. There was there was a book made about their like everyone yeah. their work, and they people wanted to talk to them and ask them questions, and and it was just incredible to see mm. them. Um, their confidence like soar as the week went on. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, lovely. Um, again, it doesn't end there, so we'll keep moving on. But uh, <laughs> you have also uh, instigated a community based plastic recycling pilot plant in Port Macquarie. And it's based on Louise Hardman's Plastic Collective Initiative for a waste-free world. Uh, how will you use a shredder, which is a combined shredder and extruder, to inform students regarding sustainability and waste reduction? Yeah, so this has been a project um, it's been in the making now for a couple of years. And uh, I met Louise a while back. Uh, she's an ex-teacher was very passionate about the marine environment, wanted to make a difference, and she decided to uh, tackle the issue of marine plastics. And she developed um, a machine that she calls the Schroeder, which basically shreds and extrudes plastic. Uh, and then you can obviously make new things out of the um, material. So taking a waste product, what people consider a waste product, like bottle caps or milk bottles and things, and then creating new things out of it. And I thought this was an amazing opportunity to bring in some design elements to schools, thinking about what can we make from this, um, this mm -hmm. product, which is being considered waste, turn it around, turn it into a resource that we can make some new products for. Um, it's been a, I'll be honest, it has been a real challenge uh, getting that project going in my school setting. Um, but what we've done, we've actually partnered with you guys at Charles Sturt University. So we've been having some really great discussions about uh, relocating the machine to Charles Sturt, um, which would appeal to the environmental science students here locally, setting up yes. a team who operate this out of the innovation hub, um, and then creating links with the high school students rather than it being hosted on site here. Yeah. Um, most, most teachers are so time poor, um, you know, their classes and planning and things. Um, this just worked out, I think, to be a better, a better solution so that we will have the benefit of having um, university support, uh, university students who are passionate about this and have gone on to do it at university running it. And then we can tie students into that. So um, we're in the process of, of getting that agreement up and running and working with CSU to create learning opportunities for both high school students and university students. And 
hopefully in collaboration with each other. So the students at high school working with the students at Charleston. So. Thanks for sharing that because again, it gives all students secondary and tertiary access to that at Port Macquarie. That's um, right, yeah. Lovely. Bit of a win-win really. Yeah, I hope so, so lovely. <laughs> I look forward to seeing it. Um, again, um, your students routinely use a 3D printer for their underwater robotics projects. But as well as this, you've got this initiative with producing 3D prosthetics for those in need. So again, you've elaborated further beyond the classroom and uh, science projects to helping other people out. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about this initiative? Yeah, well, this one's still in progress. This is sort of related to the Schroeder machine and the extrusion. So one yes. thing we're looking at is, uh, can we extrude uh, 3D filament to then produce prosthetic hands? And we've made some prosthetic hands here at school um, yeah. and tested those out. And there's some great organisations who are, um, there's like free, free 3D hands, making some amazing um, prosthetics for young people, but for a fraction of the price of what you would pay for a you know, commercially available prosthetic yeah. limb. So um, the, the science that's gone into that is just absolutely amazing. And so mm. I'm hoping yeah, once we get this program up and running um, with Charles Sturt, that we can start exploring some of those opportunities further. Oh, so it'll go hand in hand with the uh, Schroeder. Uh, yeah, that's the idea. That, that is one of the potential outputs of the, the Schroeder project. Wow. So yeah. production might pick up a little, hopefully. Yeah, and, um, but also I want to leave it like I don't want to sort of tell the students what to produce. I'd like to see what they come up with and um, what kind of ideas. So, I, yeah. you know, the only thing is they've got to think about is like not producing something that then is just going to become trash again. So it needs to be yes. something that's, that's um, valuable and useful and, you know, it's not just delaying the problem sort of thing. So... Yeah. Wonderful. So uh, again, uh, we really don't know what will eventuate. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, it should be exciting, that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I've got another one here and, and we, um, I'll just mention this. A couple of years ago, uh, your students were involved in a sustainability project. So you've covered a few areas here where they created a bike generator to charge multiple phones simultaneously. It was based on pedal power alone. So the students would get on the bike and um, charge up their phones. Would you mind telling us about this initiative and how it benefited uh, your students? Yeah, so typically the last few weeks of school can get quite tricky keeping kids engaged right to the end and you know, coming up with innovative lessons. Everyone's getting tired, teachers and students, and it can be a little bit tricky. And a few years ago at the um, college, um, they would take the Zenith class in year seven and eight and they would give them a challenge to do for a week. Um, and the challenge that the school executive came up with in this particular case was an energy challenge. How can you make your school campus more sustainable? And the students had heard about my Guinness World Record, the biking generator, and they wanted to do something similar. They wanted to get kids more active and generate electricity at the same time. And so they came up with the idea of a bike generator, which they, um, the idea was that it would be um, outside the canteen at lunch times, and you know, that students would come and have competitions with teachers so you could generate the most electricity. Um, but it was a way of, you know, getting kids active and on the bike. Um, but yeah, we ended up, I built that with a few of my, uh, I think they were year seven or eight students at the time. Um, and we had a working, working version of it, which we took to a sustainability showcase here when Costa came along and he jumped on the bike and 
how to pedal. So that was pretty cool for the students to see a um, celebrity riding their contraption at the, the local showcase. Um, so yeah, that was that was just like an end of year project, and it did it kept the kids um, engaged right to the end because that that is a tricky time of year for everyone. Yes, no, a, a very productive outcome, but I can imagine that it really stimulated the students going into the next year. So um, benefiting mm -hmm. them in terms of making them more aware of what their science classes could achieve. Thanks. Um, again, you have provided students with multiple exposure to thought provoking competitions. And I'll just mention a few here. Uh, the University of Newcastle Science and Engineering Challenge, the Sleek Geek Science Eureka Competition, Game Changer Challenge and the Subs in Schools program. Could you expand a little about these initiatives and their impact on students? Yeah, look, again, I would just um, say here, the most important point for any of these extracurricular programs is um, make them as student-led as possible and yeah. they will flourish. You know, that's one thing when we did the, um, the subs in schools program and we went over and competed um, in New Zealand, the group, I had basically one student who was really keen on um, leadership skills, developing his leadership skills. He became the team mentor. Um, he had a lot of uh, really awesome design skills and um, he really enjoyed, you know, getting groups to work together well on solving problems. And so um, that was probably, you know, the, the outcome here is that um, this one particular student um, got to uh, develop his leadership skills, but also pass on a lot of knowledge in terms of um, designing, say, in Fusion 360 and 3D printing. And, and then yeah. we had um, other members of the team who were more focused on the, um, you know, making sure we were complying with competition rules and things like that. Um, and then they competed in New Zealand and, and won the regional competition, which was a big buzz. Yeah. And um, yeah, I know that that one particular student I was talking about, he's actually participating he's a student at Charles Sturt at the moment while he finishes high school and um, he's just an amazing amazing student to work with but um, yeah I mean there's some really great opportunities out there you mentioned the science engineering challenge um, the students I took this year they they won the local one in Kempsey but unfortunately the the state mm -hmm. finals were cancelled due to COVID down in Newcastle but um, nevertheless it's a great day out and again the adults are encouraged there um, to, they even take you out of the room and <laughs> yeah. feed you food and give you coffee so that you don't interfere with the students. You know, they want the students to, to think for themselves and come up with their own solutions, not what their teachers told them to do. And I think um, sometimes that's tricky for a lot of people, you know, to, to just let go. Back, put your hands off and, and just let the students go for it. And, um, but I've seen it work remarkably in a few settings like that so yeah great no that sounds excellent and congratulations on your success um, but I'm getting to one of your latest projects now again you have so much to talk about uh, your website lists uh, your project the latest one tick and bubbles which is based on making students excuse me <clears throat> aware of community-based science projects that are creative collaborative challenging and fun would you mind telling us about the Sea Stars of STEM project? Yeah, well, this was actually one I did a few years ago. Um, haven't updated my website for a while, sorry. But uh, it's an underwater habitat project I did with another school here in Port Macquarie, a technical college. Yes. Uh, we had an underwater habitat designed by a Danish designer. Um, she sent through the designs to the school. The school 
um, engineered the um, habitat. Um, so the students got a lot of skills, like obviously technical skills here in welding, but they also had to do um, confined space training as they started welding, as the habitat got more and more enclosed, they were now in a confined space. So they had to do confined space training. And then we were selected uh, um, for Science Week funding to take our underwater contraption down to Darling Harbour in partnership with the Australian National Maritime Museum and Google Australia um, to exhibit their amazing work. And we had like a, a speed dating kind of session at the Maritime Museum one night where people came and spoke to myself and the students. Uh, the students stood out at Darling Harbour on, by day and spoke to any pedestrians coming by asking questions about what they'd built. Um, yeah, it was just a, an awesome Science Week event. Following on from that, we, we had a little underwater robotic um, day in Darling Harbour where they helped students build an underwater robot. And um, I think I've got some pictures of that here where they uh, build an underwater ROV remotely operated vehicle, there we go. And um, so some local some local young people in Sydney got the opportunity to build a um, remotely operated vehicle then drive that in Darling Harbour with the students from Port Macquarie. So that was pretty cool. Lovely, that sounds good. Um, again, just a few more things that you, to cover that you've uh, completed. Uh, in terms of further liaising with CSU and other universities as you have in the past, uh, do you have any current collaborations, projects or proposals that you could share with us? And are there any future joint projects that you might consider with CSU? Yeah, so I'm um, currently working on a project for next year and it's aimed at uh, year 10, 11, 12 students mostly who are um, super keen on like design thinking and maybe entrepreneurship. So um, coming up with um, something that they would like to create um, to solve a need or to solve a problem and potentially like look at starting that as a business. So it's, it's through the Shark Tank um, eSchool program, um, which is based on the TV show Shark Tank. Um, but it's looking at senior students. It's run um, out of Adelaide. Um, it was sorry, founded out of Adelaide. Um, students that complete the, the course got um, credits for their local university. And wow. the vision here is I'd love to see um, this in Port Macquarie. So rather than running it in my school, the idea is to run it at uh, Charles Sturt University Port Macquarie campus and getting some of the best and brightest minds from year 10, 11, 12 in the region to come and collaborate, work together um, in groups of three to four to come up with awesome ideas that they can then present in some type of showcase at the end of the semester. So it'd be a semester long program. Um, and then I'd like to, ideally, I'd love to see that expand across, you know, Charles Sturt um, right. with a similar model. Cause uh, I just think sometimes, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to get programs, to find the time to do programs in school. Yes. So I, I think this would be a, a nice thing, an after school program with like-minded students from different schools who get experience working together. Um, I think it's then, lovely yeah, to introduce the, the students, sorry, to the university early. And yeah, get that's that right. Promotion no, happening. And, and rather, again, my role would be a facilitator. If the students yes. need an expert in X, I can reach out to Charles Sturt and say, hey, we've got these students, they've got this idea. Um, I need some people that might be able to help them out or give them some pointers in, in that field and then create links and potentially get them into the innovation hub and video conferencing 
with um, Charles Sturt Academics, um, which would be amazing. So wow, yeah, fingers crossed, oh. I can get that off the ground. So uh, who knows how big it could get? So good luck. Yeah, thanks, Kylie. Yeah. Okay, uh, I've reached my summary now. It's taken a while because you've done so much. Um, in summary, it is obvious that you have mentored and opened up a new world uh, for your students to contemplate, uh, consciously enabling them to visualize their own possibilities and future potential outside the box uh, without the traditional and mainstream uh, textbook focus, it appears. So for students disengaged from school systems, it seems your classes would offer a refreshing, uh, enriching and inspiring opportunity to make positive and proactive contributions to their community. So rather than school appearing to them as just being a compulsory attendance requirement, I imagine that they would be very impressed with your active stance, contributions to, and ability to transform any classroom into a vibrant, powerful, and relevant place, especially with respect to real world authentic issues. Uh, you do make it look effortless, Lloyd, so well done on that front. <laughs> However, uh, we all know that it is well documented that this is generally not the case, and we all know it from our own experience. Uh, for example, and again, referring to the literature, um, Jennifer Gore, co-author of the 2003 New South Wales Quality Teaching Framework, has since published a 2020 uh, publication, The Quest for Better Teaching, it's titled. And I quote directly from page 45. Uh, she states, the quest to improve teaching on a wide scale is an enduring challenge globally yet demonstrable improvement in teaching quality is both elusive and slow. Uh, what is your response to this in light of your ability to change the landscape within your classrooms and implement a vast array of extracurricular activities as quickly as you have demonstrated? What does it take to achieve this? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's um, a big question. It is. How exhausted um, are you? Yeah, it is. It is very. Um, it is tiring, and it is yes. hard work. I mean, even without these things, teaching it is. It's not an easy job, I think, and it, it does take a lot of hard work, um, a lot of energy. I think some of the things that have helped me um, do the things that we've spoken about today are things like relationships building. Um, so, um, you know, creating a, a network of people um, who share your passion for science or marine studies or whatever it might be that you're um, studying or teaching um, and creating a, a network, um, you know, just so you can kind of um, spread the load a little bit, I guess. Um, and when you're, you know, looking for opportunities, there's a lot of people you can call on to help out, um, those kind of things. So yeah. yeah, I've spent a lot of energy building up, um, you know, large networks, not just here in Port Macquarie, but, um, and I guess having, coming from a, I was kind of a career change teacher, you know, I started teaching when I was very late thirties. Um, so I have a lot of experience and a lot of um, relationships built up in my previous life, um, I guess. <laughs> um, teaching, And so really drawing on those, I guess. And um, when I see links to things that I've done or people that I know in the past, you know, don't be afraid to um, give Draw them on those. see how you might be able to work together to make something cool happen. Um, right. And having the confidence, I think that was something that, um, you know, in that very first year of teaching, it can be such a hectic year anyways. Um, so to have the confidence to step out of your comfort zone and to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try and lead this 
uh, international excursion. It doesn't have to be yeah. international first time. Probably start local would be good. But um, <laughs> whatever <laughs> happens to come up. Yeah, you know, yeah. There, there are people out there that will help you and um, that have done it before. And, you know, not everyone will have the time and energy to help you, but there are people that, that will. And it's just finding those people, I guess, um, finding the people that, you know, um, will, you know, be willing to bounce ideas and feed off you. Uh, it can be hard in the classroom. It's not going to change overnight. Like, I guess I, I came in kind of thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, going, I'm not going to do things like that. I'm going to do completely, I'm going to do it completely different and yeah. um, rewrite programs, rewrite assessment tasks. But all of these things take time and they take collaboration. And so, and in order to collaborate well, again, you need to have good relationships, right? So it goes back to that building up relationships and building up trust and networks of people that, you know, you can work well together um, then you can really do make those changes. But I guess that's something I've learned um, in the last few years here is that things don't happen overnight and it can get frustrating sometimes. And, you know, you feel like you're banging your head on the wall. Sometimes you just want to get going. And, but um, yeah, it does take a lot of, a lot of those things that I've spoken about to, to happen. And sometimes also you get kind of lost in the, in the the day-to-day -day kind of stuff and you know quite often it's finding a mentor that you can go to and offload to and then and then hear things that maybe you don't appreciate at the time and just realize that you do make a difference to these young people's lives and um yeah i'm not sure yeah. if that really answered your question Kylie. well actually <laughs> it does answer quite a few questions so i've skipped a few on my list thank you okay. very much that was really good so i'll yeah. just finish with um you know, a recent Port Macquarie Focus magazine article about you states that as a younger boy, uh, your father encouraged you to follow your passions, telling you if you dream it, you can do it. But it's not, it's obvious that not only do you continue to dream and achieve your goals, but you generously share your enthusiasm and include students in varied and valuable learning experiences in and outside of the classroom. So my final questions are, what could possibly be next on your list? And if you had the opportunity to take a high school class anywhere, where would it be and why? Oh, well, look, um, <laughs> I've got um, a couple of dream destinations for students and I'm working yes. on one right now. I'd love, I've never been to Lord Howe Island, but I'd love to take, um, we've got the first cohort of Earth and Environmental Science starting next year and I'd uh, love yes. to take some students over there. So I have put in an application with a colleague for some funding and yes. I just think that would be um, an awesome classroom for earth and environmental science it's on port macquarie's doorstep you know it's yes. um, accessible it's in new south wales so i don't have to yes. <laughs> worry about borders and things like that because i've had a lot of excursions cancelled over the last yes. two years um, yes. and so that would be probably one of them the other project that i've recently started and that i would love to see come to fruition is a partnership through the bridge program uh, so I've created a um, partnership with another colleague here and we've joined up with a sister school. We've been allocated a sister school in the Solomon Islands um, in a place called Gizo. Right. Uh, a science teacher there, very, very different to um, our classroom here. And so we've been uh, part of a professional development program uh, online with our colleagues over in the Pacific Islands, uh, learning a little bit about each other. 
next year the idea is that um, they would travel to Australia and spend some time with us in our homes in Port Macquarie. Um, we would then travel over to the Solomon Islands um, to be with them. And our idea is to, she's very passionate about climate science as well. And yes. so we're looking at uh, what are some local solutions that we could co-develop in the Solomon Islands? What can we learn from each other about climate science? Um, I've got a big biogas system, which I'm sending over to Gizo. So it takes waste, um, food scraps, dog waste, whatever it might be, you can put it into this, produce uh, cooking gas, clean cooking gas for the school. And so mm. I would love to... Um, I love the idea of taking students from here over to to Gizo and um, being coming up with like a, a sort of STEM community project that they could implement in the village, but also just exposing them to a different reality of what it is like to go to school um, in their village. Their school was recently closed, not due to COVID, it was actually due to water availability. Uh, you know, so they actually had used up all their aquifer it was becoming um, brackish so there was no rain for several months or their water tanks were dry and so they actually had no water had to close the schools um, the teacher that we got teamed up with she had to take a boat um, back to her home island to do the washing uh, so you know I'd love to just expose students to that and let them see how it is another world in another place of the world and also maybe develop some stem projects you know around looking at things like how can we extract water from the air or um, how can we, it's in a very humid environment, they've got a water sh shortage, what can we do? Um, and looking at some possible solutions. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess mm. that's um, hopefully answered that question. <laughs> yeah, you're keeping it real, so well done. Um, yeah. And good luck with all of those projects. Uh, I'll finish with, um, I do believe your students will have a burgeoning sense of wonder from all of this and I congratulate you for your efforts. I think they're very fortunate to have a teacher so passionate and energetic and following through with this, providing stimulating real world inquiry and possibilities. And we at CSU uh, appreciate hearing about your exciting endeavors and wish you and your students the very best. So thank you Lloyd for participating in CS edX 2021. Yeah, thank you so much, Carly. It's been a pleasure chatting to you as always. Thank you uh, and bye everyone. And thank you for listening.